You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, episode 51. And I'm the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. First of all, thank you again to everybody who listens to the podcast. It's been amazing the last couple of weeks to see the numbers of downloads and engagements and listens jump significantly. I truly do appreciate it. And it looks like by the end of the summer, or even by the end of July, uh, the podcast will be up to around 200 listeners on average per episode, which is phenomenal because it's not even a year old yet. Thank you for all your financial support. It is greatly appreciated um, and will continue to be so in these times that we live in. And we're all struggling and scratching and grinding and hustling to make a living. And lastly, for sharing it and putting the podcast in front of other people. The, I got feedback uh, from the other side of the world, actually, this past week from somebody who discovered the podcast through a social media recommendation and just wanted to text me or tell me they appreciated what they had heard and were going back and listening through old episodes. So thank you. Thank you so much to everybody for the feedback and for the encouragement. It definitely, like I said before, um, it's nice to know that you're not talking to an empty space. <laughs> but that being said, today, uh, shout out to BJJ mom, homeschool mom on uh, Instagram. She posted uh, from Frederick Douglass. It's a quote from Frederick Douglass that caused me to give a, a real hearty amen. And uh, so shout out to Becky and um, for the quote, for posting the quote, homeschooler BJJ mom on Instagram. And to Becky and her husband, thank you for all that you do to inspire and motivate me with your posts every day and for listening to the show and giving me the feedback that you do and the encouragement. But Becky posted a quote from Frederick Douglass, which caused me then to go and find out where that quote came from so I could read the context of what came before and after the quote. And I discovered that he had delivered this speech entitled Self-Made Men before this, this large group of people. And so I just thought, Perfect. I just came out of three straight hours of mixed martial arts without a break this morning. I'm surfing an endorphin high. Let's dive into this because it, it's what I was thinking about all the way home today, which is exactly what Frederick Douglass actually gets at. So praise God for that, that self-made men are not self-made. They're not. So let's dive in. This is from the Self-Made Men speech by Frederick Douglass. I'll include a link to it in the show notes. Douglass says, The lesson taught at this point by human experience is simply this, that the man who will get up will be helped up, and the man who will not get up will be allowed to stay down. This rule may appear somewhat harsh, but in its general application and operation, it is wise, just, and beneficent. I know of no other rule which can be substituted for it without bringing social chaos. Personal independence is a virtue, and it is the soul out of which comes the sturdiest manhood. But there can be no independence without a large share of self-dependence, and this virtue cannot be bestowed. It must be developed from within. I was reflecting on this exact thing on the way home today because after classes and everything that, that I did today with my training partners, I started off at 9 a.m. bare knuckle sparring with the training, my, my apocalypse buddy and working on clinch sparring and clinch drills and 
technical sparring with no gloves. Which, by the way, if you want to get used to violence and you want to get used to conflict, getting punched and elbowed and kneed with bare fists and elbows and knees is the best way to get over that. And we don't go super hard. We're going 40, 50% at the most. But it's what's necessary then when you're not wearing gloves, when you're not wearing shin guards. You have to commit to every punch. You have to commit to every technique. You have to commit to the clinch because you are working to spar with your partner. You're sparring with them. The intent is not to hurt them. The intent is not to beat them down, but rather to spar, to fight, to train with them. And that requires a degree of trust. It requires a degree of experience with the other person so that they can trust you. And then you can take the gloves off and the shin guards off and you can engage in bare-knuckled combat because you trust each other. You depend on the other person to take care of you and protect you when you're in the pocket and you're in that phone booth and you're trading elbows and knees and you're, you're trying to get inside his shoulders and you're trying to bring his head down and you're trying to knee him and you're trying to bring elbows over the top. He has to trust that even if we connect, I'm not going to permanently injure him. I'm not going to cut him. I'm not going to break anything and vice versa. So yeah, you punch, uh, each other in the face once in a while and you elbow each other and you catch a kick with your forearm and it bruises. You get an elbow in the eye socket, whatever it might be, but it's never intentional. It's never with the intent to hurt, but always, as we were discussing with the students today, when we were teaching them at 10 a.m., 90% of the time, if you get injured, it's your fault. You didn't put your chin down. You were out of position. You moved into a punch rather than moving away from a punch. Or I anticipated he was going to do this, so I moved the other way. But then he intuitively grasped that I was going that way because we've been training nonstop with each other this whole time. And we end up clashing elbows or I check a kick or a knee or we bash skulls, whatever it might be. But it's not malevolent. It's not intended to hurt, like I said. And the level of confidence then that you come out of that session with the level of confidence and of calm that you went through that moment with someone else and they gave something to you. They gave you the gift of trust. They gave you the gift of an intimate moment where the two of you enter into this flow state together and you just exist in that moment, in that pocket of time. And you're not thinking, you're not worried, you're not anxious, you're not fearful. You're just there in that moment and you're reacting and you're trusting the technique, you're trusting your training, you're trusting your partner. And you can walk out of a situation like that then and say, what a good boy am I? Or I did great. Or what did I get out of this today? Or you can walk out of it and respect the whole process. My training partner, Greg, is 70 pounds heavier than I am. If he wanted to, he could destroy me. He's also got 19 more years of experience than I do in Muay Thai. So if he wanted to, he could crush me, he could destroy me. But we both know that. And because he knows that, and because I know that, and because nothing is to be learned or gained from him bullying me and dominating me physically, or not teaching me the techniques, not showing me my weaknesses, my bad habits, where I need to improve, what I need to pay more attention to necessarily in this situation or that, not only do I not get better, not only do I not grow and improve, but then he is lesser for that as well because he's lost the opportunity 
to get a training partner to gain someone who he can coach up, he can teach up, he can build that confidence and that trust up with me so that, yes, he's improving, but now I'm coming up faster and I'm learning more broadly but more specifically at the same time because he's constantly coaching me up, teaching me up, trusting me to take care of him in those moments when we're sparring so that we can have that. And in the world, at least in my experience, and I've talked about this before, men, at least of my generation, we just weren't raised to be intimate with each other and to give to each other. It's the old cliche of men can't ask for help. Well, if we can't ask for help, who taught us that principle? Who gave, who instilled that ethic in us that if we're lost, we can't stop and ask for directions? It didn't come out of nowhere. We weren't born that way. We had to be taught to think and to act that way. And one of the things then that mixed martial arts has given me is an opportunity to enter into intimate relationships with other men based in giving, coaching each other up, teaching each other up, lifting each other up. So yeah, you can say I had to choose to enter into that gym. I had to choose to train in Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu. I had to choose to take the gloves off and enter into bare knuckle combat. I made those choices and I would learn from them for certain, even if Greg didn't coach me up and train me and teach me. But I wouldn't learn as rapidly and I wouldn't advance as quickly because I'm not open to being taught or he's not open to teaching me. And therefore, again, we are both lesser than for it. We both suffer as a result of it. Rather than entering into it and recognizing, here's someone I can trust. Here's a kindred spirit. Here's someone who is hungry to learn what I have to teach him or her. The second example then happened in jiu-jitsu this morning. I was rolling with a big man, my brother Dutton. And I love Dutton because he's a big man in more ways than one. Again, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Dutton, but I'm pretty sure at 175, you outweigh me by approximately 70 pounds as, as Greg does. So if Dutton wanted to, he could just drop all his weight on me, suffocate me, pull an arm out, do something, I'd tap. He could do that easily. He's also got way more experience at this than I do. But he chooses not to, which is why he's a big man more than just physically. Because he actually makes the choice to coach me up, to train me up, to be that training partner. So that like today when I got submissions against him and the coach is giving him a hard time and another teammate's giving him a hard time. And I'm sitting there saying, don't, don't talk trash to him. I got to roll with him. Don't make him angry. Like I'm the one who has to suffer. Even afterwards, when I can talk with our people and say, yeah, I tapped Dutton today twice. And they're like, wait, how do you do that? Like that's not, that's not possible. He outweighs you by 70 pounds. He's got way more experience than you do. Yeah, but Dutton let me work my game. He let me get in positions where I could get a submission so that when I come out of that, I'm not sitting there humble bragging and saying, yeah, I totally tapped Dutton today and I'm, I, I'm ready for my next belt promotion. Obviously, I'm there. I'm a killer. No, rather, I'm humbled by his selflessness. I'm humbled by the fact that he gives me those moments in the midst of those sparring roles to work my game, to get in a position where I can get a submission and then make me work for that. But also reminding me then when he gets tired of getting in those positions, he can just stand up and slough me off. He can smash and pass. He can do that. But that's what I mean is that a big man, in my opinion, a big man, a man of character, a man of integrity, a man that you can trust and you can give something back to then 
whether it's just my appreciation or my gratitude, a big man gives. He gives selflessly. He coaches up. He teaches up. He makes himself available because he knows, he knows his skills and abilities. He knows his advantages and disadvantages. He knows what he knows, and he's willing to give away what he knows and what he's learned in his experiences to me to say, hey, here's some advice. Here, let me coach you in this area, or let me give you an, give me a suggestion about this over here where you're deficient. And then what comes back at him? Is it appreciation and gratitude? Is it excitement that I learned something new? Am I hungry to learn more? Or is it ingratitude? Do I dismiss him? Do I treat him as if I don't need to be taught? That arrogance and overconfidence and hubris that comes from people who treat you as if you don't have anything to teach them. And so in my opinion, from those two examples from today, the people that think they're self-made are self-deluded. They lie to themselves because they don't, they're so insecure that they can't admit that they need other people. Or when they do admit it, they do so in an attempt to use and exploit the other person for their personal benefit. They don't give. They're not selfless. They're not focused on being charitable with their experiences and their knowledge. They're entering into this relationship. They're entering into this business partnership. They're entering into this sparring session only because they see some advantage, some benefit to themselves. That's a byproduct of of training and sparring. That's a byproduct of the fight game. It's a byproduct of getting into a good relationship and a good business partnership. If you share with each other and you trust each other and you're honest with each other and you're both people of good character, the byproduct of that relationship is going to be that you benefit personally so that you can say, well, I did this myself. I'm a self-made man. But like I said, in relation to something like a submission, if you walk away and think, I totally dominated this person who has more experience than me, is bigger than me, is stronger than me, if you really think that walking away from that you dominated because you're just the better man. To me, in my opinion, you're deluded. You're lying to yourself. The person that you are on the inside is so insecure and your ego is so overblown that you can't see yourself reflected back at you from your training partner, from your spouse or your partner, from that business relationship, your business partner. Because each of us, in relation to everyone else, is a mirror. We reflect back at other people, something about themselves. St. Augustine, back in the 300s, said in his book, The Confessions, which is essentially a confession of how he went from being an atheist and an unbeliever to being a Christian, said, the reason that I can see arrogance in someone else is because I am an arrogant man. If I see some other man and say, man, he's selfish, the reason that I can recognize his selfishness is because I am myself selfish. It's essentially like attracts like. If you're a charitable and giving person, you will see charitable and giving people, and you will be attracted to them because you see yourself reflected back in, at you in them. Or for myself, for example, when I see someone who's humble, when I see someone who's giving, when I see someone that is proving themselves to be trustworthy, in a way, it's the backspin of that finger that points at me and accuses me and says, you're not that way. You're not as charitable as she is. You're not as giving as he is. Why aren't you as selfless as them? And then I want to elevate myself. I want to improve and grow as an individual, as a man, 
because I am shamed in a positive way by that relationship. So for myself then, it happens at the gym, it happens in my home, it happens at church. And the point then is that the lesson taught, as Douglas says, the lesson taught by human experience, this is something then that all human beings experience. To be human is to experience what he's describing. The man who will get up will be helped up. The man who will not get up will be allowed to stay down. Think of the difference between a person who sees themselves as a victim, where everyone around them is a victimizer. Everyone around them is a perpetrator of abuse. Everyone around them is responsible for them being flat on their back, down down on the ground, down on their luck. They blame everybody for why they are the way they are. I was talking with a friend of mine about this yesterday when I do prison ministry. Predominantly, there's two types of people that I encounter. There's those who take ownership and responsibility for the reason they're in prison. And then there's the other person who will go through a litany of reasons why they're in prison, and none of them have to do with their choices. Well, it was the people that I was with, or it was a mistake I made. For example, this woman I know, and I can talk about this because it's in the past, she led police on a high-speed chase down the highway. So when we met, she said, I know it was a mistake. I know the, like I made the mistake. The mistake I made was leading police on a high-speed chase. And I said, I don't actually think that's the mistake you made. The mistake you made is you opened your door to these two guys who you were drinking buddies with. You opened the door to them when you knew they were coming to ask you to drive the car for them to go rob the bar that you all drink at every night. That was your first mistake is you opened the door and went with them. The second mistake was taking the shotgun and going in the bar with them. The third mistake was thinking that you could go in a bar that you drink at every night and nobody would recognize you even with masks on. Then lastly, you led police on a high-speed chase. There were so many choices that you made personally that led up to that moment. But all you can see is it was these other two men's fault. It was the bar's fault. It was the policeman's fault. It was your father's fault. It was your uncle's fault. It was somebody else's fault. It was always somebody else's fault. And therefore, at a certain point, when I met her, after her third or fourth jail stint, she was down. And not only was she down, but she was so far down that no one wanted to help her anymore. No one believed anything she said anymore because it sounded rehearsed. It sounded like she was saying what was expected of her to get paroled or to get a lesson sentence. And yet, after just 45 minutes of the two of us talking and me sug- making suggestions about taking responsibility and ownership and walking her through these experiences that she lived, she came around the other side and said, you know what? I think you're right. I think I need to go in a different direction. I think I've been lying to myself this whole time. I think I've been lying to myself lying about the people that I've been, I surround myself with, lying about the choices I make, blaming other people who aren't around anymore for my drug abuse, for the way that I treat myself, the way that I allow others to treat me, is all because I blamed everybody else and never noticed that the common denominator in every one of my stories is me. And so as a consequence, I never recognized that, yeah, when I'm eight years old, when I'm 12 years old and I'm being abused, I have no choice about that. But at a certain point, I allowed the victimization and the abuse that I suffered as a a little girl to dominate 
my entire life. My entire life. And so, yeah, now she's doing 23 years, but she's doing those 23 years a free woman because she's taking ownership of her whole life. She's taken ownership of the victimization and abuse she suffered as a little girl. She took ownership of the things that she chose to do as a teenager. And then she took ownership for the things that she chose to do as an adult. And so she acknowledges, I deserve to be in prison. I made bad choices. And yeah, I didn't start off at 10. I started off at negative points in life. But where I'm at now, I don't have anybody else to blame. The people that abused me are dead. The people that I allowed to abuse me, they're not around. All I have is myself. And so I can either sit in prison for the next 23 years and get out when I'm in my 60s and still be a victim, or I can take ownership and responsibility for my life. And even though I am physically in prison, in my mind, in my spirit, I'm free. I'm a free woman. But it had to start with one person taking the opportunity to listen to another person to say, hey, you know what? When you came and visited me in prison, it turned my life around. And my Sally, she's in the same spot I was at. Could you, if I can get her to agree to it, would you go see her too? One person said to another person, this person's down, but they want to get up. Can you help them up? And I did. But not to my credit, praise be to God, who put us in that room together and made that conversation possible. So if you want to learn, you will find people who want to teach you and you'll avoid people who don't. If you are hungry and thirsty for knowledge and you want to surround yourself with people who are going to lift you up when, even when you fall down, you're going to notice overly confident people. You're going to notice arrogant people. You're going to see it in yourself too because you're going to see it reflected back at you by those kinds of people, those characters. If you want to be a person of integrity, if you want to have a certain degree of dignity and self-worth, at a certain point, you're going to make up your mind. I refuse to be in relationships, personal, business, or otherwise, with people who are treating me like I am lesser than, like I am just here on this earth to be exploited and manipulated for somebody else's benefit. I'm not. I'm made in the image of God. I am a creature of God. And to be blunt, you're somebody who Jesus died for. That's what Good Friday is all about in the Christian church. Jesus died. For all of you, all of your selfishness, all of the selfishness of the world, all of us biting at each other and devouring each other because we're selfish. Because all we care about is me and what I can get for me before I have to check out of this life. But if you want to get up, you will surround your yourself with people who want to help you up and you will avoid people who step over you on whatever path they're on. But if you want to lay down, you want to go down and not get back up again, then you will be allowed to stay down because you will end up surrounding yourself with people who keep you down, who keep their foot on your neck. And even though, as Douglas himself says, this might appear harsh, in human experience, in its general application and operation, there's wisdom in this, there's justice in this, there's good beneficence. There's goodness in this. And there's no other rule that can be substituted for that principle without bringing social chaos. We currently occupy a, a time and a space in the United States where a majority of the population sees themselves as victims because it has been indoctrinated 
for generations now that they are victims. That everyone else is responsible for their situation in life. And just the way that I've thought through it this week, reflecting on the autonomous zone in Seattle and other cities now where people are trying to set up autonomous zones in other cities, and just the overall narrative being being spun by the media and politicians. About a generation ago, it became popular in schools and in homes and in communities to tell kids, you're all, you're all equal. You're all equal. No one is better or worse than anybody else. Everyone gets a trophy for participating. There is no score. You are all snowflakes, to use the cliche that's commonly thrown around snowflake culture. But you're all snowflakes in the sense of you're all unique, but you're all the same. You're all equal. No one is greater or lesser than anybody else. Well, now we're seeing the consequences of teaching our kids this stuff. We have Marxists. <laughs> We've raised Marxists. Go back and read Karl Marx, Marx and Engel. You can get the Marx and Engel reader on Amazon. I highly recommend it. Educate yourself. Educate yourself in leftist ideology. Like I said in previous episodes, go read Gramsci. Go read Trotsky. Go read Lenin. Go, go read the famous communists. Go read the famous socialists. Look at people that break it down and can teach you how to grasp these concepts and how they, they, they play themselves out in, in real-world situations. As an example, LeBron James and I are not equal. We are not equal. We are not the same. And if I go onto a basketball court or I challenge LeBron James to a fist fight, it will become quickly apparent that he and I are not equal physically at all. We are men. We are the same gender but we are not equal. Likewise, if you come to the gym and you've never done jujitsu or Muay Thai before, I'm going to dominate you. Point of fact. In fact, we were talking after class today, the most fun is when a bodybuilder, weightlifter, some big jack dude comes into the gym and thinks he's just going to throw somebody like me around because I'm 175. 6'2", 175. And then I just roll him up and make him look silly. It's that ego that gets in the way, that, that false sense of, of importance. Because I do X, therefore Y. Not all the time. Against a trained fighter, it doesn't matter how jacked you are. I know how much oxygen you need to get to those big old muscles of yours. I know how flexible you are. I have experience. I have technique. I can withstand a lot of damage. I can withstand a lot of violence and chaos and stay calm in the midst of that. And as a consequence, on the mats, we're not equal. We're just not. But if you come in humble, if you come in ready to learn, I will teach you everything that I know. That's wisdom. Wisdom, in my, in the definition I like best is that wisdom is a lifetime of failure. It's the experience of multiple failures. That's truly what wisdom is. So when I say something to my kids, when I talk to a teammate or, or whoever it might be, especially when they're younger than I am, all I'm sharing with them, all I'm telling them is, yeah, when I, when I did this thing that you're doing now, this is how I failed at it, and this is what I learned from it. And that's justice. You put the scales, you put the weight of that experience, the weight of that conversation, the weight of that relationship on the balance, and you see which way it tips. And if it tips to the negative or the positive, always looking for the good, always trying to tilt the scale more towards the direction of, of true justice, of righteousness, of good. And to me, that's what sharing experience is. 
is it's offering someone something that they don't have and saying, here, I have this wisdom because I failed a lot at life. And the longer you live, the more you're going to fail, hopefully. Someone who always succeeds, that's a cliche at this point, but the people that always succeed really have nothing to teach because they've never had to deal with loss. They've never had to deal with failure, quitting. And the, at least for myself, I should say, the, the gnawing ache <laughs> and regret that comes from losing and from failure, knowing I lost because I made a bad decision in that moment, or I lost because I was bettered. That person that I just fought against was the better man today. Or I quit on myself. And now I got to live with the fact that I quit on myself. And at least the way that I'm wired, I, I hate that. <laughs> I hate that about myself. And so at least the last four years or so, five years, it's been a constant daily exercise to hammer that out of myself. So like yesterday, I'm out at my tire, my big old truck tire, tractor tire, got my sledgehammer, big old fat sledgehammer, playing Thor, as my kids say. And I was going to do five sets. And then I got to five and I said, you know what, I'm going to do seven. And I got to seven, I did eight. And then I got to eight and I said to myself, well, you might as well do 10. And that mindset though, uh, at seven, eight sets was, well, you've done enough. You're good. You're sore. And you know, you're going to train for three hours tomorrow. You don't want to be sore or crippled up tomorrow. But then I said to myself, but no, you're not going to quit. You know, you're not going to quit. You're just playing mind games. So this goes back to the mind control thing that we talked about um, on the midweek debrief from Jocko Willink and uh, Discipline Equals Freedom, is declaring war on your mind. When that little voice that lives rent-free in your head tells you to quit, tells you, hey, you know what? There's nobody out here watching you. No one's judging you. Give yourself a break. Take it easy. You've got a big day tomorrow. Versus, no, that's a lie. You're lying to yourself. You can do 10. You're just bored you lack mental discipline. And you know you're going to do 10, so why are you trying to talk yourself out of this? You know you're not going to quit because you couldn't live with yourself if you quit. I'm actually having this conversation with myself yesterday, which I don't know if that's rational <laughs> or slightly psychotic, but I'll do this with myself. I will battle against my own mind. And the thing is, the battle is quit or complete the task, do the 10 sets, the 10 reps, because you know when you get to 10, that feeling of satisfaction, that feeling of, I got there, I did this, and now next time I'm going to do 11, because I can go to 11. Shout out to Spinal Tap. Nigel, tough now. So that then you roll into class this morning at 9 a.m., and you know you're going to put in three hard hours, and you're not going to take a break, because if you did that yesterday, if you put in 10 sets yesterday, you can definitely go for three hours today. And you know what you need to do to get from 9 a.m. to 12.30. You know what to do, so just do it. And the, the confidence that comes with that, the self-confidence that comes with that, the emotional well-being that comes from that, just how relaxed you are, or at least I was, just so relaxed, so in the moment, to be in a flow state for three hours is an amazing experience, let me tell you. And I recommend it to everybody to strive for. But I wouldn't have gotten to there without everybody else. The tire that I use that I hit with my sledgehammer, somebody from church went with me to get it and help me unload it and set it up. My wife went and got me the sledgehammer when she was out. My training partners are why I show up at the gym every day and why I push myself to be better. So 
Am I stronger mentally and physically and emotionally because I pushed myself? Sure, absolutely. It was just me. I was there holding the hammer. There was nobody else there. But all of those other people got me to that point. And without them, I wouldn't have been there. It's like I've talked about in regards to addiction. I know people, I myself, have relapsed because I wanted to get sober for other people. But you can't get sober for other people. You have to first get sober for yourself. You have to get sick and tired of being sick and tired of your slavery to this substance. Because if you do it for somebody else, eventually you're going to fold. Because think of it this way. If your wife says, I don't want you to drink anymore. I don't like the way that you are when you're drunk. I don't like the way you behave. It's a problem. So you say to yourself, you know what? I love you. And I'll quit for you. As, a, as I'll do it for you. But eventually, because you don't really believe you have a problem, you don't really believe you're an addict, you're going to drink again. You're going to relapse. Whether in a good, uh, you had a great day and you just want to have a drink at the end of the day or you're having a bad day and you just want to self-medicate to get out from underneath that fear and that, that anxiety or that depression, eventually you're going to relapse. And even if you don't relapse, you're still a dry drunk because you still live with the mentality of an addict. And so you still make decisions just like an addict makes decisions because you're not truly sober until you take ownership of your sobriety and dedicate 100% of your life every single day to living clean and sober. That's discipline. When I first was told that, I laughed out loud in the person's face. He said to me, you have to spend 100% of your time and energy on sobriety and being sober every day. And I laughed in his face. And I asked, well, then how am I supposed to do anything else? How am I supposed to have a job? How am I supposed to hang out with my kids and be a dad? How am I supposed to do anything if all I ever think about all day long every day and all I ever do every day is focus on being clean and sober? That's stupid. <laughs> what I didn't understand at the time, and I had to learn through experience and through failure was, and this is 28 years ago now, 24 years ago, sorry. What I learned was, what he was saying to me was discipline equals freedom. Sobriety is a discipline. It's a daily discipline. Every day you have to get up and say, today, I'm going to stay sober. I'm going to be clean. In my thoughts, I'm going to strive for sobriety of thinking. I'm going to strive for sobriety of emotions. I'm going to strive for sobriety in all of my actions and choices. I'm going to hold myself accountable. I'm going to think clearly. I'm going to think logically. I'm going to, I'm going to cage those emotions that threaten to overwhelm me and cause me to do things that I know I'm not going to like after the fact. I'm going to be disappointed in myself. I'm going to be ashamed negatively if I allow my emotions to overwhelm me. And yeah, then I'm going to start that addictive personality behavior again because I'm not paying attention to the hole in my fence line. I'm not paying attention to my weaknesses and vulnerabilities. But once you make that switch, once you flip that switch and you surround yourself with sober people and you surround yourself with positive, encouraging people, when you join in that struggle toward that common goal of being physically and mentally stronger, training yourself up, learning from others, seeking to get better every day at whatever it is that you've chosen to undertake, then every day is 100% dedicated to the discipline of being better, of growing, of being sober, even if you're not an addict, to live sober, to make sober decisions, to dedicate yourself to that pursuit, 
And then, sure, to outsiders, it may seem harsh, but that's only because when they look at you and they see what you're doing and how you've taken ownership of your life and you've chosen to enter into relationships with people rather than allowing yourself to be tossed this way and that way by your emotions, well, this person makes me feel good when I'm down, so I'm going to hang out with her today. Well, I'm angry, and he, he fuels my anger, so I'm going to hang out with him now because I'm angry, and I want to I be angry. Well, I feel like I'm justified in what I just did, so I'm going to hang out with people that justify my decisions. How do you ever know, then, if you're on the right path? How do you ever know if you're becoming a better person, a good person, a just person, if everyone around you is simply nodding their head and saying, yes, you should be angry, you should attack them, they deserve it. If you live your life as if you're the victim of circumstances that are outside of your control, how can you ever expect to get up and be helped up? When people see you laying there complaining about how no one ever helps you get up, and yet when people offer to help you up, you immediately fall back down because you don't know how to stand on your own feet. You don't know how to stand up for yourself. And you don't want to because now it's become pathological. You see yourself as a victim, so you surround yourself with people that victimize you. And you enter into relationships with abusers and victimizers and perpetrators of violence. You go to jobs where you're dehumanized and you're treated like you're lesser than, like you're one twenty-fourth of a human being. You choose to put yourself in those situations because you see yourself reflected back at you from those other people. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm not worthy of love, so I surround myself with people who don't love me. I see myself as a victim, so I surround myself with people who victimize me. I see myself as somebody who's been abused and is abused, so I surround myself with people who abuse me. I'm fat, I'm lazy, I'm dumb. Whatever it might be, I'm ugly. Whatever it might be, you choose to think that about yourself, and then you choose to surround yourself with people that reinforce that opinion. But it's not true. The most beautiful people I've ever known are not physically attractive people. The smartest people I've ever known never went to college. The most admirable, good people I've ever met. I don't even know where they live. I don't even have their phone number in my phone. So when we say self-made man or self-made woman, what we really mean is, at a certain point in my life, I realized I'd fallen down. And maybe someone pushed me down. Maybe I threw myself off the cliff by my own choices, whatever it might be. But I realized, I recognized, I'm in the gutter. I hit bottom. And I'm going to need help climbing out of this hole that I dug for myself. And so I shout, someone help me up. And when they come and they see me, and they've been down in that hole before, and they recognize, hey, I've been there, and I know the way out, and they jump down in the hole, and they help you climb out, they put you on their shoulders, Rather than, it's like the, the analogy of the bucket of crabs. You put crabs in a bucket, one crab tries to climb out, all the other crabs will actually grab a hold of that crab and pull it back down into the bucket. The man who will not get up will not be allowed to stay down. But the man who will get up will be helped up. So at a certain point in life, you're going to get thrown into a bucket of crabs. And they're all going to keep trying to pull you back down into that bucket of addiction self-hatred, self-loathing, insecurity, fear. Or you can grab a hold of that, the rim of that bucket, to push the analogy, cry out for help. The person that sees you trying to get out of that bucket sees you trying, that all these other people trying to pull you back down. They're going to see that and they're going to come to you and they're going to help you out. 
And you're going to look back over your shoulder and ask, how did I get there? How did I get in that bucket with all those people? How did I get down in that hole with all those people who were always trying to pull me back down again? How did I get there? And more important, how do I never get put back in that situation again? Maybe thirdly then, thinking out loud, if I do end up in that situation again, how do I get out? <laughs> how do I get myself out? How do I stop myself as I'm going over the edge? How do I stop digging when I recognize I've dug my own hole? No one's self-made. God created you. No one's self-made. Somebody or some people gave themselves, gave their experience, gave their wisdom, gave you what they've learned over the course of their life so that you could get better, so that you can improve. They coached you up. They taught you up. They raised you up, literally lifted you up and made you better. So the next time you get that submission, the next time you walk out of class after sparring, the next time you killed that business meeting, the next time you got straight A's, the next time you say to yourself, I can't believe how amazing my life is. Remember, someone else got you there. And once you realize that, once you recognize and acknowledge that and accept that, then the rest of your life can be lived in that way with gratitude, with sobriety, with clarity of thought and action. And then you can say, hey, I am self-dependent. But because I'm self-dependent, I recognize there are certain kinds of people, certain kind of relationships, certain kind of business arrangements, certain kind of training partners that I'm going to look for. Because I want to be the type of person like all those other people that gave themselves to me and gave of themselves to me and shared themselves and their experience and their life and their learning with me. I want to be one of those people. That's virtue. That's good. That's just. But it must be developed from within. Like I said, you must first ask to get help. You must first choose to get up and then ask for help. So if within yourself you don't want to get up, then don't expect anybody to help you up. If you want to be a victim and you want to stay at the bottom, there are plenty of people there already that will be more than happy to keep you there. Most of the world is composed of those people, as we see right now in our society. But to say I'm sick and tired of being on my back, I'm sick and tired of being at the bottom, I'm sick and tired of being dehumanized and marginalized and treated like I'm lesser than a full human being, being treated as if, I'm not worthy of God's love or other people's love. I'm done with all that. I'm breaking away from it no matter how painful it might be. When you make that choice for yourself, that's then when you turn that corner and say to other people, I need help getting up. I have forgotten how to stand on my own. I'm going to need help learning how to walk again. I'm going to need someone to teach me how to run So in the end then, our strength, our vitality, our gratitude for life, our humility is given to us. It's all gifted to us. And life then is a gift if we choose to see it as such. Even in the struggles and the challenges then, even when you're getting elbowed in the head, <laughs> it's a gift. So long as one, you understand that you're asking that person across from you to help you up and to help you stay up. And second of all, it's the same thing every day. It's the struggle. It's the challenge. Not a burden, not a curse, but a struggle, a challenge. 
and that the purpose isn't the goal. The purpose is the struggle itself. Because every day you're in the struggle, every day you're accepting those challenges, choosing to enter into those, you're going to be a better person for it. You're going to learn from it. And you're going to be a better person for others then. And you can help those people become self-dependent to be independent individuals who will then go around giving away of themselves because they have nothing to lose. They have nothing to worry about. They were given to and they're just paying it forward. So that's all I got for this week. I truly, again, appreciate all of you for listening. I truly appreciate all the conversations I've had through DMs in person with those of you who listen to the podcast. It's been amazing, especially at this time when everything is so fluid every day. It's a challenge to be sober. It's a challenge to keep your head. It's a challenge to not let emotions overwhelm you. It's a challenge to just shut out all the noise and remind yourself, hey, I'm still allowed to think for myself. They can't take that away from me. There may be a lot going on around you that you don't have control over, and that's for sure. But the one thing that we always have control over is our attitude. The way that we approach conflict and struggle and challenge. The way that we interact and engage with other people. We don't have to escalate the conflict. We don't have to escalate. We can be the people that de-escalate. We can be the calming presence in the room. We can be the listener and not just the talker. We can be the one who helps people up. We can be the person who puts someone on our shoulders and says, you know what? I'll carry you until you need to be put down again. So, yeah, that's all I got. Thank you. I love you. We'll see you for the midweek debrief in a couple days. Peace.